Well, I invite you to turn with me this morning in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. We are in Mark chapter 14, verses 66 to 72. Mark 14, 66 to 72. And if you need a Bible, you can grab one of the Black Pew Bibles in front of you. This is on page 852 of those Bibles. I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to evoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the the rooster crowed, A second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. As many of you know, our our pastors and elders attended a Christian conference that focused on the Puritans a couple weeks ago, and it was sweet for us to be able to spend time together as a group, to share with one another, to pray with one another. Uh, We had an opportunity to plan a little bit for our church together, and the preaching and the singing at the conference was also quite excellent. Uh, I think we all learned a a lot more than we did before about the Puritans. We learned about the context in which they lived, and really we learned about their biblical convictions. But one night after the, the conference was finished for the day, uh, we decided to, to show the, the only member of our group who hadn't lived in L.A. Um, the best of the city. So uh, at Pastor Stephen's suggestion, we decided to eat a late dinner at Roscoe's Chicken and Waffles, Hollywood. Now, if you haven't been there, you are missing out on a significant portion of God's common grace to man, okay? Roscoe's is a soul food restaurant. It has become an, an L.A. institution. It's known for fried chicken and waffles. So um, after having been fed spiritually by John Piper, that evening we drove out to Hollywood to be fed physically by Roscoe. But alas, it was not meant to be. You know, we got to Roscoe's. But there was no parking to be found. We looked for street parking, not a space available. We we tried to park in lots, but they were were closed for for special filming or they were full. We circled for at least 20 20 plus minutes. And uh, we eventually realized that the problem, the area was packed because Christina Aguilera was performing at the Palladium nearby. 
And, and when we drove by the Palladium, the line was out the door, it was around the corner, and at that point, I think we knew we were done for. You know, we were all starting to get really hungry, so we just decided to head back to the area near our hotel in Glendale and find an easier place to eat at there. In the end, Pastor Ryan didn't get to experience Roscoe's, but I think he did experience L.A. as it really is. You know, celebrities, traffic, parking problems. That little hiccup in our plans reminded me of the great popularity of Christina Aguilera, especially back when I was a bit younger. I mean, she had some hits back in the day. (laughs) And as I was preparing for this Sunday, there's one song of hers in particular that came to mind. It's the song, Beautiful. Many of you probably know it. It's, it's a slow, kind of haunting song. It's a song that is about self-empowerment. It's about inner beauty. And in it, she sings, You are beautiful no matter what they say. Words can't bring you down. Oh, no. You are beautiful in every single way. Yes, words can't bring you down. Oh, no. So don't you bring me down today. I know, it hits a little different when she sings it. <laughs> in any case, that, that song came to mind because it's a song about self-confidence. And in many ways, it, it could serve as one of the anthems of our age. It might compete with something like Lady Gaga's Born This Way, in which she sings, I'm beautiful in my way because God makes no mistakes. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. Don't hide yourself in regret. Just love yourself and you're set. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. Or if that's not your cup of tea... Maybe you might prefer BTS's Dynamite, where they sing, because I'm in the stars tonight, so watch me bring the fire and set the night alight. One of the BTS members said of that song that it has a message of confidence and happiness. It's like after you fell on the ground, you're trying to get back up again. That's what this song is like. So much of... The music we are drawn to in this day and age is about confidence. It's about self-belief. We're taught from a young age that we have the ability and the inner strength to be successful in this world and to, to conquer any difficulties that we come across. The message today is love yourself, trust yourself, believe in yourself, be true to yourself. You're beautiful. You're on the right track. Don't let anyone bring you down. You you can be in the stars and bring the fire and set the night alight. But the Bible teaches something far different. It tells us that our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately sick. It tells us that, that we are darkened in our understanding. It tells us that we cannot please God. And this is the doctrine of depravity. Now, depravity doesn't mean that we always act as badly as we could. It doesn't mean that we can't do relative good in this world, but it does mean that we are not born on the right track. It means that there is something ugly inside every one of us. It tells us that that because of our sinful nature, we are born into this world morally corrupt and enslaved to sin. So we should not trust ourselves and we should not put too much confidence in ourselves. And when, when Christina sang that song, Beautiful, in Hollywood a couple weeks ago, I'm sure that many people resonated with the message of it. But the truth of the matter was much better expressed by the Puritans. 
John Owen, one of the most well-known Puritans, wrote a whole book about our sin nature and the need to, to mortify it. He said, sin is always acting, always conceiving, and always seducing and tempting. We are all subject to our sinful nature and, and sin, when, which is always acting and, and conceiving and seducing and, and tempting, has disfigured and distorted the beauty within us. We are not beautiful in every single way. And if we disregard that truth to imbibe the, the soothing drink of self-confidence and to consume the meal of self-empowerment, which is offered everywhere today, we put ourselves in great spiritual danger. Today, we find an example of someone who was too confident in himself. And that, that confidence led him to fail the Lord Jesus in a spectacular way. Today, we consider Peter, one of our biblical heroes. But we find him at a moment of great weakness and shame. We find him doing something he never thought he would do. And today, we're going to look at Peter's denial of Jesus. And reading this account is very much like looking back into a, a family photo album. You know, it, it's seeing family members that bear a, a striking resemblance to yourself. You know, today, we look back and find one of the forerunners of our faith, a fellow member of God's family, failing in a stunning way. He denied Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. But as we consider what he did on the night before Jesus' death, we need, to, we need to pause. We need to stop and recognize that we're just like him. We all deny Jesus in various ways. That is the sad reality of our depravity. And none of us is as faithful as we should be in our allegiance to Christ. And that is ugly. But what is beautiful, what, what is dynamite in this passage is the great hope that we have if we turn back to Christ and place our confidence in him where it rightly belongs because he will never fail us. As we return to Mark's gospel this morning, we find ourselves very close to the cross where the final hours before Jesus will be crucified for our sins. Chapter 14 is when Mark begins to record the end of Jesus' life. It's at the beginning of this chapter that we learn how the, the leaders of Israel had plotted in earnest to arrest and kill Jesus. They, they were spurred on by their confrontations with him in Jerusalem that week. And we learn that they were helped in their plans by Judas. He betrayed his master. He gave up his location to the authorities. And so Jesus was arrested while he was praying in the garden of Gethsemane. And upon his arrest, all his disciples fled from him. But if you look at verse 54 of chapter 14, Mark tells us that after fleeing, Peter had a change of heart. He returned to follow Jesus as he was led to the palace of the high priest. And, and that's where Mark left us for a moment as he turned our attention onto Jesus' trial in the house of Caiaphas. We learn that though he was unfairly accused, Jesus endured the mockery of that trial because he had planned all along to go to the cross for us. 
inside that house, Jesus endured the abuse of his accusers for the sake of others. But, but outside, another story was unfolding. And that's where Mark redirects our attention in the verses before us today. Mark takes us back outside of that house and causes us to focus in on Peter. And in verses 66 to 72, we find that Peter has a very different response than Jesus did. Instead of enduring abuse and scorn, he tried to avoid it. And he denied any association with the Lord in order to preserve himself. This morning, I want us to consider Peter and what his responses in these verses teach us. First, I want you to see the unfortunate reality of denying Jesus that even the best of his followers experience. This is what we find in verses 66 to 71. The unfortunate reality of denying Jesus. Denying Jesus is a reality that we all face. And notice in the first few verses of this text that denying Jesus can creep up on you when you aren't following him wholeheartedly. Denying Jesus can creep up on you when you aren't following him wholeheartedly. Mark tells us in verse 66 that Peter was in the courtyard of the house of Caiaphas, and this area was below the upper area of the house where Jesus was being tried. Now, the very presence of Peter in this place at this time was somewhat unexpected. He was not someone associated with the high priest or someone who would have naturally belonged in that courtyard. But John tells us in chapter 18 of his gospel that Peter had been allowed entrance because he was with another disciple who knew the high priest. And many believe that disciple was John because he may have been known in the house through his family fishing business. If that's the case, then after getting Peter in, it's likely that John went further inside the house where he was known to be closer to the trial since he had access. So we find Peter in the courtyard of the high priest, and he's alone as a follower of Christ. After fleeing from Jesus in the garden, he's marshaled enough courage to follow him again. That should be commended. But verse 54 of chapter 14 tells us that he was still following at a distance. He wanted to be somewhat near the Lord, but not too close to be caught with him. And so as he kept his distance in the courtyard, he was warming himself around a fire on a chilly spring evening or night with some of the guards. But as he was trying to stay warm, one of the servants of the high priest, a girl, had an epiphany. In the glow of the fire, she, she noticed something familiar about him. Mark writes in verse 67 that she looked at him. And that word looked in the Greek doesn't just mean to, to glance at or to briefly notice. It means to, to look upon something or someone intently. It, it means to, to gaze at someone. Have you ever had someone come up to you and stare at something on your face? You know, maybe you had an aunt who noticed a pimple on your chin or uh, a kid who was intrigued by all the moles or sunspots on your cheek or a significant other who is just enraptured by your facial features. Yeah. 
in any of those situations, it's a bit disorienting. Okay. Well, that is what this girl did to Peter. In the amber glow of the night, she needed to get a closer and clearer look at him. But eventually it clicked for her, and, and Mark doesn't tell us exactly how she knew that, that Peter was one of Jesus' friends, but it's not hard to imagine that as a servant in the high priest, she might have been around the temple when Jesus was teaching and his disciples were nearby. It's very possible that she had seen Peter with Jesus that week in Jerusalem. So after identi- having identified him, she confronted him. She, she said, you also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. And we know that she wasn't giving Jesus a compliment because the word Nazarene had negative connotations. In John 1, 46, one of Jesus' own disciples, Nathaniel, said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? In Acts 24, 5, Christians were pejoratively called Nazarenes because of their association with Jesus, who had the reputation of stirring up riots among all the Jews. To be called a Nazarene back then was perhaps akin to be being called a, a hillbilly troublemaker today. You know, this girl wasn't giving off pro-Jesus vibes. And, and sensing that, Peter did not confirm her suspicions. Instead, he tried to deflect her accusation. And in the process, he indirectly denied any association with Jesus. He said, I neither know nor understand what you mean. That's just a way of saying, I don't know what you're talking about. He was pleading ignorance. He was trying to avoid the question. But in his heart, being called out as a companion of Jesus made him uncomfortable. And so he went out into the gateway, Mark says. That's the entryway to the palace. He he just wanted to kind of get away from the people in the courtyard. And at the end of verse 68, we read that a rooster crowed. Now, there's some debate over whether that phrase about the rooster was actually written by Mark, since some manuscripts don't include it. The evidence is roughly 50-50. But if indeed a rooster did crow at this particular time, Peter wasn't in a state to truly heed the warning of that sound. Jesus had predicted this very thing would happen back in verse 30 of chapter 14, but Peter hadn't listened carefully to those words. Instead, when Jesus told Peter that he would deny him three times before the cock crowed twice. Peter emphatically said in verse 31, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Peter was so confident in himself. And his supreme self-confidence caused him to tune out the warnings of his Lord. He was in his own little bubble with his own proprietary noise cancellation set on high so that he didn't even notice the crow of that first rooster. This confidence kept him watching, kept him from watching and praying in the garden as well. He wasn't battling the sin of his pride and self-sufficiency. Despite Jesus calling him out multiple times there, he still fell asleep. And so in the midst of the extreme disappointment and chaos surrounding Jesus' arrest, Peter found himself abandoning the Lord. His sins of omission, his sins of failing to guard against temptation and pride, led to sins of commission in which Peter fled from Jesus. And then denied the Lord whom he loved. And it didn't take much to trip him up. 
because, because he wasn't following Jesus wholeheartedly, be, wholeheartedly. Because he was depending and trusting in his own willpower to be true to the Lord, he ended up denying Jesus at the simple statement of a humble servant girl. There was no clear threat in the words of that girl. Though she may not have approved of Jesus, there was no clear hostility in her words. She seemed to simply have been making a logical connection that she wanted some clarification about. But her simple statement led Peter, the leader of Jesus' disciples, to fail his Lord. This is a reminder that temptations come in all sizes and shapes. Even the smallest temptations can overcome us when we're not following Jesus closely. Indeed, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us, but if we do not rely on the grace of God in our lives, we cannot stand. When you're not spending time in regular communion with the Lord, when when self-reliance is strong in your life, when, when you're following Jesus but keeping him at a distance, when you don't feel like you really need the grace of God, when, when you're just going through the motions of Christianity, you may find yourself falling unexpectedly prey to the temptation to deny your Lord. And this doesn't have to happen in a spectacular way. But we deny Jesus as the Lord of our lives every time we forget to live like him or follow his words. Sometimes the whining of your child may cause you to deny Jesus as your Lord because you react impatiently and angrily, which was never the way Jesus reacted. Sometimes the simple request of a, of a coworker can push you over the edge and cause great anxiety or frustration to enter your heart as you deny Jesus and his promises to make all things right for you in the end. Sometimes a tempting image in an advertisement or just a long day of work can lead you to sinfully pursue fleeting pleasure as you forget that Jesus is the one who will provide all that you need so that you can be content in him. Sometimes you feel wronged or annoyed at someone and you don't want to forgive. You don't want to reconcile with that person. And you deny the Lord who modeled forgiveness and caused you calls you to forgive others as well. We, we really aren't that different from Peter. We're all tempted to be fair-weather fans of Jesus, following him, kind of, inclined to his words, mostly. But when difficulties arise, when, when something relatively small but annoying pops up in our lives, we often show that our commitment to the Lord isn't as strong as we may have thought. We allow ourselves to deny Jesus as our Lord and Master in so many different areas of our lives. We all face the unfortunate reality that we may deny Jesus. And we are tempted to deny him when we aren't pursuing him, trusting him, listening to him, and praying to him. Denying Jesus can creep in when you aren't following him wholeheartedly. We see next in verses 69 to 71 that denying Jesus can also deepen when your reputation in this world is at stake. Denying Jesus can deepen when your reputation in the world is at stake. And notice what happens next in our passage. Mark tells us in verse 69 that the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the, the bystanders, this man is one of them. 
Peter probably hoped that he could slink away from the girl who had outed him, but she wouldn't let him. She, she persisted, and she told others that he was one of Jesus' crew, one of them. And these bystanders began to chime in as well. Luke twenty two fifty eight tells us that a man in the group claimed the same thing. And Matthew twenty six seventy one mentions that another servant girl corroborated the, the information. But we see in verse 70 that again, Peter denied it. And the tense of that verb denied here is the imperfect tense. It's a different tense when, than when Mark used the same word in verse 68. The idea that Mark is trying to convey is that Peter was now repeatedly denying these claims. The intensity of his denial had picked up. Initially, he had just tried to claim ignorance. He tried to brush the the servant girl's accusation off in private, but now his identity was a public question. And multiple people were associating him with Jesus. The potential cost of being tied to Jesus was increasing, and this deepened Peter's denial of him. We then read in verse 70 that after a little while, Luke twenty-two fifty-nine 59 says it was about an hour later, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you who are one of them, for you are a Galilean. And so despite his repeated denials, the group just couldn't let this matter go. John tells us in John eighteen twenty-six that one of Malchus's relatives was in the group. Now, if you remember the name Malchus, he was the guy in Gethsemane who had his ear cut off. And if you remember who did the cutting, it was Peter. So there was some real suspicion in the courtyard concerning the the true identity of this unfamiliar yet somewhat familiar man in their midst. You you can imagine the conversation. Wasn't wasn't that guy in the garden? I think he was. No, no. Why would he hang out with us? Wait. Wait, he kind of looks like the guy who cut off your fam's ear. Is that the dude? No way. Man, that guy wouldn't come here. I heard all of Jesus' friends fled. They left him. Jesus is done for anyway. Look at all the witnesses that the priests are bringing in. He's done. No, wait, I think the girl's right. That really is him. Wait, wait, did you, did you hear him? He, he's a Galilean. Listen to the way he talks. Dude, that is him. And so they said to him, Certainly, you are one of them, but, but Peter would not relent. In the, in the lowest, most humiliating moment of his life came in verse 71. This time, he didn't just deflect the statement or even simply deny it. He added a curse on himself. What does that mean? Well, in the Greek, he literally anathematized himself. He put himself under a curse if what he said was untrue. Some people think he was also cursing those who suggested that, that, that he was one of Jesus' friends. That's possible as well. But what Mark is trying to help us understand is that Peter swore in the most solemn of ways that he was telling the truth when he said, I do not know this man of whom you speak. I don't know Jesus. I don't know him. The man who healed my mother who taught me the truth, who I said had the words of eternal life, who helped me walk on water, who showed me a glimpse of his glory, who called me blessed, I don't know him. What a sad, miserable, unfaithful statement. 
Despite all that Jesus had done for him, Peter swore that he did not know him. And pity us for the times when we do the same thing to Jesus. Despite all that he has done for us, how easily we are prone to denying that we know him to keep our worldly reputation intact. In the house of the high priest, Jesus was being tried and he was condemned. And to the people sympathetic to the views of the Jewish elite, he was a crazy heretic from Nazareth. And anyone associated with him would be guilty by association as well. That's what was playing out in Caiaphas' courtyard. And, and Peter was beginning to feel the pressure, and he caved in under it. He pretended not to know Jesus so that the bystanders around him wouldn't mock or punish him for it. And I want you to know that Jesus has been tried in our society as well. He has been tried, and he's been found wanting. Though many of his actions may still be viewed as commendable and honorable, his message is too intolerant. And his teaching is largely dismissed. Half a century ago, it was still relatively favorable to be associated with Jesus in our country. It was a positive thing to be a faithful Christian man or woman. But that changed around 25 years ago. It became a, to be a Christian became more of a neutral thing, not necessarily good or bad. But now, to wear the badge of Christian is to be seen in many circles as a Nazarene a backward troublemaker. To be a Christian in Silicon Valley often presents more barriers for growth and advancement than if you were just agnostic or an atheist or you just held to other more tolerant religious beliefs. A couple weeks ago in Australia, a Christian Australian football executive was forced to resign from his position as CEO of the Essendon Football Club. Why? It was discovered that he was a faithful member of a conservative Christian church. He hadn't violated any moral code. He hadn't said or done anything wrong. He was on the job for less than two days. But when it was found out that he was associated with biblical Christianity, it caused him to lose his job. He said he was given the option of resigning his membership from the church or resigning his position as CEO. He chose to give up the football club. We have now entered our own courtyard of Caiaphas in the 21st century here in the Western world. We are living in a place where we must not assume that we will be liked or that we can just get warm with others by the fire without being called out. Even if you are kind and winsome and gentle, you may still be guilty by association. The fact that you go to a church that has a statement of faith that says marriage is between one man and one woman may be enough to bring reproach upon your name. The fact that you believe along with Jesus that abortion is wrong and that gender is a real thing and that hell is real for sinners will be enough for others to consider that you're a troublemaker. Church, we must be prepared for our worldly reputation to be tarnished as we follow Christ. We should still be kind and winsome and gentle and loving to all, and perhaps some will be won by the testimony of our lives. But knowing Jesus is no longer a badge that our society considers honorable. And we are going to be tempted to deny Jesus in order to get certain jobs, to keep certain friends, and avoid being labeled. 
In fact, we're tempted to deny him already. Kids, when you don't pray at school during lunch because you're scared of what others will think, you're denying Jesus. Singles, when you downplay your Christian faith on dating apps or in your interactions with the opposite sex, you're denying Jesus. Brothers and sisters, when your coworkers or neighbors talk about their vacations and their weekend plans and the concerts that they went to, but you don't want to seem too weird or too religious for talking about your involvement at church and your love for the Lord, you're denying Jesus. When you try to just blend in or avoid any mention of your Christian convictions about key issues being debated in society, it might be wise, but you may also be denying Jesus. I'm tempted to do that just like you are. There are times when I'm reluctant to say that I'm a pastor in social settings because I know that immediately puts me in a box in people's minds. And I don't know if that's a box that they like and they want to use in case of emergency or if that's a box they just want to crush and dispose of, throw into the recycling bin. We must realize that the temptation to deny Jesus is real. It's real because we don't always follow him wholeheartedly and because associating with him puts our worldly reputation at stake. That is the unfortunate and sad reality of denying Christ. That's what Peter experienced in the courtyard of the high priest. But fortunately, our passage doesn't end in verse 71. We need to read on for in verse 72, we find the right response to denying Jesus. We saw the unfortunate reality of denying Jesus. Now let's consider the right response to denying Jesus. In verse 72, we learn that immediately after Peter's denial, a rooster crowed a second time. And this time, the sound of that second crow didn't go unheeded. For at that time, Luke twenty-two sixty-one tells us that Jesus also turned and looked at Peter. Across the courtyard, Jesus looked and he saw his friend. He looked at him knowing that his own prediction about him had just come true. But that look wasn't one of judgment or anger. Rather, Jesus' eyes were filled with compassion and love. And this caused Peter to recognize what he had just done. Mark writes that he remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. He realized that though he had denied Jesus, Jesus could never really be truly denied. Peter failed. We may fail, but Jesus never does. His words always come true. And in this moment, Peter realized once again the power and the truth of Jesus' words. And I believe he realized that Jesus' love and commitment to him was steadfast. We may stumble outside in the courtyard, but Jesus is always standing firm inside for us. And the recognition of all this caused Peter to to break down and to weep. Now, were these tears tears of worldly sorrow? Or were they tears of godly sorrow? Well, in Mark's gospel, Peter actually drops out of the scene here. We don't know what he did after that second crowing of the rooster other than cry. 
We don't know if he left the courtyard or if he stayed, and we don't know what he said or thought in those moments after Jesus looked at him. But in chapter 16, verse 7, after Jesus had risen, the angels told the two women at the tomb to go tell his disciples, Jesus' disciples, and Peter, he's singled out there, that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And what that tells us is that Jesus had not given up on Peter. When he looked at Peter in the eyes after he was denied by him, Jesus was already looking forward to his restoration. And in John 21, we learn that Jesus talked to Peter again, and he famously asked him three times, do you love me? And three times, Peter reaffirmed his love for the Lord. And Jesus told him to feed my lambs and to tend my sheep and to feed my sheep. And Peter was restored. And he eventually changed from a cowering disciple, toppled by the words of a, of a servant girl, to a spirit-filled apostle who preached the gospel to thousands and was not afraid of the most powerful religious leaders of Israel. He eventually became the rock that Jesus called him to be. He came to understand the truth that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Why was Peter restored? Well, he recalled the Jesus. He recalled the words of Jesus. He wept over his sin. And he turned back to Jesus in love. And in that, we see the difference between Judas and Peter. Both betrayed Jesus. Both expressed a measure of sorrow. But Judas never had hope in the midst of his sorrow. Judas lost hope in God and his grace, while Peter lost hope in himself, and he found it in Christ. Peter failed under pressure, but never switched allegiances, and he realized that the less confidence he placed in himself and the more confidence and trust he placed in God, the more he would be used by God to help and serve others. We all hear the rooster crow. We all hear it in our lives. Don't think that you can't or that you won't fail the Lord. You know, there's a part of me that has looked at other notable pastors who've fallen into sin recently, whether in their relationships with women or in their financial dealings or their ungodly character. And I've thought to myself, that's not going to be me. You know, I know I'm not perfect, but, but that's not me. Oh, how I have seen myself in Peter this week. Self-confident, self-assured, prone to forgetting to watch and to pray. Following Jesus, but oftentimes not closely enough. There's a pride in my heart, and I too must walk humbly if I am to be faithful to my Lord. I also need to take heed lest I fall and I sincerely hope that the Lord will be gracious and sustain me in ministry and in life. But I'm reminded with you this morning that I'm still prone to denying him. That is the unfortunate reality of our lives. But the key question is, how will we respond if that happens? Will we respond with bravado and confidence in ourselves? Or will we weep? Self-confidence is a weak foundation bound to buckle and crack. We must turn to Jesus instead. 
We must come to him fallen and broken so that we can be restored and used. If you have never done that before, if you have never come face to face with the ugliness of your sin, if you've never come to the realization that you are not as beautiful or as dynamite as you thought, if you have never realized how offensive it is to God that you have been denying him in your life, know that this is the rooster crow that God is sounding to you right now. Hear it. It's tolling, it's ringing, it's, it's sounding for you. And the Lord is looking at you today with eyes of compassion, not with eyes of condemnation. He's looking at you having been mocked and beaten by guards so that he might take your condemnation upon himself at the cross. You just need to turn from him, hear his words, ask for his forgiveness and commit to following him wholeheartedly. Let this be the day when Jesus is no longer denied in your life. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father in heaven, we realize that we are more like Peter than we like to think. There's a temptation for every one of us to deny you in various ways. We want to be accepted by this world. We are distracted by other things. We don't follow you the way that we should. And we don't live our lives fully in allegiance to you and your son. Oh, Father, help us to watch and pray so that we might not enter into that temptation. Help us to, to pursue Christ, not at a distance, but follow him closely, to realize that he is Lord, that his words are true, that they will come to pass, that he can be trusted, and that he has done everything that we need in order to be reconciled to you and live a life that is pleasing to you. Oh, Father, guard us from denying you but we admit that the reality is that we will likely deny you in some way. And so in those times, help us to weep and turn back to you. Uh, remind us by the example of Peter that restoration can come from those who humble themselves and realize that they are broken, putting their confidence in you. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, our precious Lord and Savior. Amen.